if you have buildings that have the capacity for really easy, fast internet connectivity, that's really half the battle. This is episode 319 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. A year ago, we first brought you information on the podcast about a special program in San Francisco to bring high-quality connectivity to residents of the city's public housing units. In episode 264 of the podcast, we spoke with Preston Ray and Mason Carroll from Monkey Brains, the wireless ISP working on the project. We thought the plan and its results were awesome, so we decided to produce a report that included the details about the project. The approach is one other communities can reproduce, so we put one of our stellar public policy interns on the task of developing a report, Hannah Rank. Hannah has left to return to grad school, but before she took off, she sat down with Christopher for episode 319 of the podcast to get into the details of what she learned about the Monkey Brain San Francisco project. Hannah and Christopher talk about funding, services available to subscribers, and the digital inclusion program that has more than an obvious advantage in this approach. Here's Christopher and Hannah Rank discussing San Francisco's program to bring better internet access to residents living in public housing and how their partner for the project Monkey Brains is making that happen. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. You know, I'm getting kind of tired of saying it that way, but I feel like it annoys a number of people, so I have to keep it up. <laughs> well, I edit or the transcript for this, so I hear it all the time. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> that voice that you're hearing is Hannah Rank, our um, an intern we've had over the summer from the uh, Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm Chris Mitchell, the guy who's tired of doing the same intro <laughs> for 300 plus shows um, with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, freshly back from a wonderful trip to um, Mozilla, the Mozilla Foundation which was just doing a, a contest for a smart city and uh, some disaster recovery type of technology and interesting projects. So I'm enthusiastic, even though a little tired and jet lagged. Hannah, we're going to talk about San Francisco. Sounds good. So you have been spending a lot of your time this summer working on a report about what Monkey Brains is doing in San Francisco. Who are Monkey Brains? Um, Monkey Brains is a local San Francisco ISP. They offer wireless internet service. Um, right. I think they might be the largest wireless uh, internet service provider in an urban area, but um, I'm not totally sure about that. That very well could be. They certainly service a lot of San Francisco, which is a large urban center, so I wouldn't be surprised. And they've been operating since 1998 and just recently in the last couple of years have been um, providing free or low-cost internet well, free for residents um, at a couple of uh, low-income housing complexes in the city of San Francisco, in the Bayview neighborhood and the uh, neighborhood of Western Edition. We talked with uh, Preston Ray and Mason Carroll from Monkey Brains back in episode 264, about 50 episodes ago, um, about some of this stuff and just more generally about the technology they use. But you've really been zeroing in on how they're really at the forefront of what I think will ultimately be the solution we see in public housing in many cases, both from a technological side and also a pricing side. Yeah, definitely. They really took the reins in um, talking to a lot of different stakeholders, both the housing providers um, and the city of San Francisco, to try to 
really zero in on how can we do this well, how can we do this easily and efficiently. Um, and so I think they really worked hard to try to make this a sustainable model for the future. And you're, you've written a report, you've written a strong draft of a report that we're still, we're still tweaking and, mm-hmm. and learning what mistakes we've made and things like that. Um, but you're going to be gone soon. So we're doing a preview <laughs> of it. I'm going to have to finish up uh, the work and inject my own errors into your <laughs> error-freed writing, I'm sure. Um, and so we wanted to, we want to do a preview because we'll be releasing this in September, we hope. And, um, and it's really interesting. We talked about it a little bit in that previous podcast with uh, Mason and Preston. Um, but there's, there's a couple of things that I think we've learned since then that we want to get down. One of them, you know, that I think is really important is um, in 2018, I, I feel crazy saying this, we still have people building buildings. I mean, we're not even just low-income housing, but all kinds of buildings without proper wiring. That that blows my mind. I, you know, you don't spend as much time, you know, f- like fretting about things like this. Maybe <laughs> was that surprising to you? Yeah, definitely. So the housing complex's names are Hunters Point East and West, and that's a series of like clusters on an East and West side, and Robert Pitts, which is a separate. Um, housing complex that was in Western Edition. And both of them were undergoing major remodels. Um, and we can talk a little bit about where the remodeling aspect came from, um, the impetus behind that. But yeah, so the they were undergoing major remodels, and that included rewiring of all the units. And so during that process, before, you know, Monkey Brains and other, you know, ISPs or the Department of Technology of um, this city of San Francisco got involved. They were wiring for Category 5E, which is a, a type of Ethernet wire that Right, we all just call it Cat 5E. Cat 5E, the, yeah. the, the industry peeps, but I'm not really part of that. <laughs> so <laughs> I say the full name. But yeah, so that wiring supports um, telephone or telephone and um, a fiber connection, but um, the fiber connection is would be slower if... The way that they were doing it was um, they were offering just the telephone jack, but Monkey Brain stepped in and said no, and they put in a very simple change order and actually got them to jack for both a, a landline and for Ethernet. Um, but that only supports about a hundred uh, megabits per second of speed of symmetrical speed, which is fast, but um, fiber can easily um, support a gig. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's worth noting. I mean, just for people conceptually to think about, when we say Cat Five E, um, what that means is four twisted pairs, typically, mm-hmm. um, which means you have actually eight wires in in this sheath. I think two of them would support telephone, which would then leave you with with um, six. But I think probably just really four to be able to use for data in the way that cause I don't know if you can actually use six. Um, this isn't an area that I know quite a lot about. I'm sort of wandering out. Certainly, on, me neither. Right, <laughs> wandering on a branch, but can't, but can't the fun you much of a bone. the fundamental point is is that if if they could do it all over again it would have been great to have two cat 5e wires to Mm -hmm. every unit um, so that you could um, have one dedicated for broadband and another one for voice services exactly and that's what um, Preston was saying in our conversations about this report is that um, if they had gotten to the sooner if they if perhaps the building housing providers had consulted somebody who works in this industry, they would know that just a simple to pull two instead of one wires into each unit would have made certainly a lot more flexibility in the future, depending on what they wanted, what the residents themselves wanted to do with those wirings. Right. And that's a, it's a very low cost at the time. Right. And so now they're kind of 
they're being smart about it and they did a workaround and um, pulled a new jack right in the nick of time. But um, it would have certainly given them a lot more flexibility to if they wanted gig service to have it. So if we step back for a second, I mean, these were areas of the city that have been significantly rehabilitated under yeah. a specific program that you wanted to tell us a, a little bit about. And I think it's it's relevant for making sure that other cities that are looking at these opportunities get it right the first time. Right. So um, rental assistance demonstration is a, it's a, we're going to throw a lot of like acronyms up, but um, it's the... It's a federal program that is run by the Office of Housing and Urban Development, which is a federal agency. Um, It's a process by which um, public housing run by the public housing authorities of cities and municipalities gets converted into Section 8 eligible housing. So that means it becomes owned by a private entity, whether that be like a nonprofit housing developer or just mm-hmm. a regular housing developer. And let me just say that that, that makes me nervous. I haven't looked into it right. enough to get a sense. Like I, don't, I wouldn't say I want to have a knee-jerk reaction, but it makes me nervous, but it is a reality. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that whatever kind of low-income housing stock we have is ready to support these kinds of services. Right. Not to go too far down that road, but I think a lot of housing advocates would just say better funding for public housing instead mm-hmm. of transferring debts onto the private entities but the reality is it's it's a popular program at least in the federal government because it's debt neutral for them they just transfer the public housing and and that it makes um the actual housing um eligible for debt financing which it can't be if it's a public housing unit and other types of financing which Mm -hmm. um and basically it it lightens the load for public housing authorities to be quite frank but um section 8 housing basically is Uh, Well, Section 8 is actually a voucher where um, individuals who are low income that need rental assistance can uh, apply and get that funding to basically reduce their costs to just, I think it's about 30% of their income. Um, In San Francisco, there's a minimum amount that they have to pay for rent, which is, I believe, $25. Mm -hmm. Right. We're getting a a little bit off of subject, but but while we're here, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, uh, is incredible. It it got a lot of really good reviews for good reasons. So for people who are interested in in what it's like to be um, on Section 8 housing in different, particularly in Milwaukee, but but also more generally, um, that is just a fantastic read. Um, But the the point here, I think, is is that where you have um, these kinds of big clusters, centralized public housing, you have an opportunity to do um, relatively insignificant one-time costs to really solve this problem. And that's what what Monkey Brains is demonstrating. That's what your case study is really going to talk about, is that when these properties are being redeveloped, you can get the wiring internally right. You can make it easy for an ISP, a, prof- a for-profit ISP or a non-profit ISP, um, to come in, offer good services that will work for them. Now, in this case, Monkey Brains also had the benefit of a program uh, from the California Public Utilities Commission, what we often call CPUC, and specifically a program within there called the California Advanced Services Fund, which people often refer to as CASF. The California Advanced Services Fund is a more specific type of funding for um, renovations that have to do with um, increasing broadband access. Um, so, 
Well, the entire CASF fund, I actually, you know, just as you were saying that, I was thinking, I've long lamented that states are pretty much only putting money into rural areas and not putting money into urban areas. Um, but California is the, is the rare state and possibly the only state I know of in which um, the California Event Services Fund can be used for both rural or urban needs. Yeah, basically, they define the funding eligibility based on unserved or underserved. And that is basically whether you have access to a certain threshold of what they determined to be broadband, oh, which yeah. we can talk about. <laughs> but it's basically, oh, it's yeah. a lot low. The most recent um, re-up of the funding that the legislature passed um, changed or lowered the threshold from the FCC's definition of broadband to California's own definition of broadband, um, which is unfortunate, but for a different time to talk about. Um, Yeah, but so basically, depending, I I can't remember exactly what the... um, 6-1. 6-1, okay, so a lot lower. (laughs) Still, regardless, there are people in in San Francisco proper who don't have 6-1 capability or access. Certainly, I think probably in this case, it's just out of reach um, financially, mm-hmm. um, maybe infrastructure-wise in some parts, but um, certainly financially. Yes. And so in this case, um, Comcast had bid to serve the buildings and Monkey Brains um, decided that they could do better. And um, and then they got this money from the CASF, which really helped um, enable them to, to really, I mean, do an incredible job of providing the highest um, the service that we see in public housing anywhere that's available at no charge to residents. Yeah, definitely. Comcast bid was much higher. Uh, I don't know the semantics of how much it was. Um, but basically, Monkey Brains both committed to offering really low internet service and also found different funding resources that would help them along. Um, the CASF being a huge one and then the rental assistance demonstration. So if you, it's kind of like putting pieces of the puzzle together mm-hmm. for financing. And also you have to have a city that's looking to renovate and update its public housing, which as we've seen everywhere is kind of the case where it needs a lot of updating in a lot of major cities. So it's not like it wouldn't be able to be possible, but yeah, just finding those pieces of financing to get it going. Right. Yeah. We think this is broadly replicable, which is why we're both talking about it and writing about it. Um, But it's, it's worth noting as we did, I believe in the podcast 264 that um, these are mostly one-time investments. So they can provide service on an ongoing basis at a very low cost. If you get the one-time investments, right. Whereas I think too many public housing facilities settle for having Wi-Fi in the hallways, which doesn't deliver a good service to everyone. It's certainly not an even service. I think there's security concerns about it, although there are practices that could remedy a number of those. Um, But the challenge fundamentally is that I believe we should be striving to have internet access to everyone in their home that is not interfered with by their neighbors. And that's something that I believe Monkey Brains is really getting right. Yeah, I think this fits into Monkey Brains' belief that practices that involve digital inclusion is necessary to get everybody up to speed for digital equity. I mean, quite literally, building wide Wi-Fi is maybe easier to to install. Um, It's maybe less labor intensive, but it definitely does not get people up to the standard of um, internet access that they need to be creators on the internet, to be participants of the internet. Um, In-unit ethernet is not 
that hard, but it takes some coordination Mm -hmm. and it takes some planning and it's not just like popping in a Wi-Fi connection at the last minute um, and calling it a day. Right. I think probably some of this just comes from, I mean, the people who run public housing are very busy. They're very specialized. They're overworked. Many of them probably are just thinking, oh, wireless is the future. Right. Wireless will be good enough. And something that we've mentioned before is that, you know, Monkey Brains is itself a wireless ISP. Um, Now, they're very deliberate, as many WISPs have become, in terms of recognizing where wires are better, where wireless is better. So they may actually have a network which is wired from point A to B, wireless from B to C, and then wired again from C to D. And then it may even be wireless at that point from D to the device E um, as you go from different hops in the network. And um, and they basically pick the lower cost option and, and not just lower cost of one time, but lower lifetime cost uh, of how it's going to work out, I think. Um, and so let's just briefly talk about this, though, but but um, the, the services, depending on the wiring of the home, they're getting 100 megabits or a gigabit, right? Right. So um, I believe in Robert Pitts, which we've talked about less because it was a little bit more of a streamlined effort. Um, I believe they have a, a gigabit there because mm-hmm. the, the project just was more coordinated um, because it was after Hunter Point East and West. But at Hunter's Point East and West, they have 100, 100 megabits per second already. If they want more, they can coordinate that with monkey brains. One of the benefits of doing this recording now and getting things on the record when we haven't nailed everything down is that any mistakes we're making now will be corrected in the paper, <laughs> yeah. which will have more Preston, detail. Preston, listen to this. <laughs> if it's not right, let That's me right. know, please. <laughs> so, um, and, and we we should just note, Preston, uh, Mason, the folks at Monkey Brains have been incredible. We would so not helpful. be able to do this podcast without them. They, um, the report without them, uh, they have been very open uh in sharing a lot of this information. So um, I just give them tremendous respect. And I wanted to, I just wanted to ask you, you went to grad school, um, you know, you started grad school, you got an internship studying, doing broadband policy. Did you expect that you would say monkey brains more than the entire cast of Indiana Jones and the, the Temple of Doom? No, but I'm, it's a pleasant surprise, let me tell you. <laughs> Sometimes I'm talking about it in staff meetings, and I, th- I think people hold back giggles because they are doing really great work. They just have an awesome name. Right. Well, I, I constantly tell people, particularly when I'm not on the West Coast, I'm, I start talking about the project, and then I'm, I'm going to say monkey brains, and I say... So I'm about to say the name of the ISP. You have to understand that these people are very serious. They're very good at what they do. Their name is Monkey Brains. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. You can't blame them for it. They also have an awesome logo of like a very crazy looking monkey. It's Mm -hmm. awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, probably a very smart monkey. Yes. Uh, but we want, I want to ask you, who's paying for what? And, and this is something that just uh, we're really going to nail down very clearly in the report. Um, but uh, in general, right now, um, people are getting 100 megabits, a gigabit, depending on which building they're in. How much are they paying? Yeah. So this is one of the best parts about this is that the residents are not paying for anything right now. And um, Monkey Brains has worked out a really good I think offer that they are getting a little bit of funding for it. But um, at the end of the day, the residents aren't paying anything. And that's really important because even for service calls, I believe. And so that's like something that really promotes buy-in if they know that there's no, there's no little nickel and diming happening. It's free and they just really want you to get involved and they want you to get you to that fast internet service. 
Right. And over time, uh, there will be some charges. Presumably, we don't know, and no one knows yet, hasn't been settled how they might be allocated because uh, over time, as we see more public housing agencies do this, we might see some of them paying for it, um, you know, just as they, they may other uh, kinds of services or they may pass through a charge. Um, but I, one of the points that we want to make is that any charge that, that will go through, no matter who pays it, will be reasonable. It's not going to be $50 per household unit or something like that. No, I think the key here is that um, Monkey Brains is a for-profit business. They have costs that they have to control, but their goal is not at all just to find another place to you know get money from. It's, it's definitely always been a priority of theirs to um, just get these folks to have fast internet mm-hmm. in any by any means possible without finding funding from other sources or coordinating really strong relationships with the housing providers to m- get them to believe that it's important too to then you know maybe think about investing in this in the future that's always been their tactic from the start. And this is this is one of the reasons that I I sometimes yell um, at people. I think more often I, I don't yell, but sometimes <laughs> Do you I'm... need a reason. <laughs> <laughs> more insights from Chris's management style. <laughs> Just kidding, everybody. Um, we um, is is that sometimes people like when they're thinking about Comcast or the big companies, they just generalize for profit companies. Yeah, and it is worth noting. I mean, we had many companies on here that are for profit companies that right. are that have had a larger impact than nonprofits have had, and so it is worth remembering that um, you know for profit can mean a lot of different things. Absolutely, and it often depends on the scale of the of the firm and, and who's running it. So um, the. The last thing that we want to make sure we touched on was some of the digital inclusion pieces. And I think I think this is one of the, the pieces that has to fall into place nationally because um, one of the biggest costs that monkey brains could face would be these service calls, uh, particularly among populations that do not have very good um, internet access skills, um, computer literacy. So having a digital inclusion component can take some of the pressure off of an ISP and allow them to keep their costs down if they're not the the front line of answering questions about why a, a computer might not be working. Right. So um, one of the people, the, the organizations rather, that we haven't really talked about as much that were sort of peripherally involved in this whole um, effort is... Well, they, yeah, they certainly, I would say we wouldn't want to minimize their role in making no. it happen, but... No, it, but just in terms of this actual process, mm-hmm. um, they were integral in getting um, Monkey Brains involved as um, Community Tech Network um, run by Cami uh, Griffiths. We talked with her about this. And I think um, her um, sort of, um, <laughs> I was going to say, partner in crime, uh, Mike McCarthy, who had yeah, worked yeah. for the city and is uh, um, and has been an incredible resource for me over the years, both in terms of San Francisco and also just thinking about these issues more generally. Yeah, definitely. He's been helping us along with this, too. Um, so CTN, um, Preston Ray is, was, I don't believe he still is, but if I'm wrong, Preston, we'll know. let me know, um, <laughs> was on the board of CTN, um, which is, uh, if you guys haven't heard of it, it's a digital literacy and inclusion nonprofit. And basically their main focus right now is doing training programs in places where there are populations that don't have adequate access to the internet or are not versed in the internet. And so 
they mainly focus on the what they call the three legs of the stool. I never get that right, which is um, adequate and affordable internet access. One stool. Yeah. One, one leg. One leg. See, you do <laughs> yeah. too. Um, and the second leg is um, getting a device that would that they prefer to use and can use well. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is, yeah, just getting them versed in how to use the internet. I think a lot of times with um, getting people involved is that they're wary of using the internet. They've never used it before or had, you know, spotty access and they just don't think it's a really powerful tool for tool for them. And so Cami and CTN, they work with generally older populations, uh, maybe populations with disabilities or folks that um, whose language first language isn't English. And then also communities with up lower income who don't maybe have as much access regularly to the internet. The ISP Monkey Brains took care of the fast, adequate internet access, um, affordable being the main component. And then the other two is just getting that buy-in. If you have a device that you know how to use and you like using it, that's half the battle. But also just feeling safe and comfortable on the internet, knowing that it can be a great tool to connect with your friends and family, and also a tool to um, participate in the economy, whether it's even just going on a job board and finding a job Mm -hmm. to like you know, starting a small business. There's lots of shades to that. Um, but all of those make you feel like a participant in one of the most, you know, powerful forms of connection, the internet. So, so Hannah, as you've been doing this work, um, you know, what have you found in terms of what are the limits of, of some of these folks um, having, taking advantage of access to the internet, the, the low income populations? The thing that Cami brought up that was one of the main ones is um, affordability, you know, the prohibitive costs of the Internet. Um, a um, really recent Pew report showed that about, I think I want to say it's 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 20 percent of Internet users are smartphone only users, which, you know, you could just say that people use their smartphones more. But when paired with another statistic, it shows that it's really about affordability, which is that people making less than $30,000 a year, you know, a good portion of those are only smartphone users. And so that tells us that something that you guys have talked about constantly at ILSR and um, the Community Broadband Initiative is that it's a lot about affordability when you think about how how expensive it can be to have a wireless internet plan, I'm sorry, an internet plan rather, and to have a, um, a smartphone service. The, the pairing of those two can be prohibitive for people. So they just choose, you know, I need to call people. I need to text people. Mm-hmm. I'll just use my internet on my phone and, you know, try to work with that. But if anyone's tried to, like, edit a paper or look something more in-depth up online, it's just on a smartphone very hard to do. So it's much better to have, like, a device where you can have all the options for using the internet. Right. And so as we're, we're talking about how to keep those costs low, I think it's worth just um, going over exactly what um, the, some of the costs and the technology are to do this. So you, let's just say that you have a new um, low-income housing building going in or complex, because a lot of times these are 
you know, sort of like a campus of multiple buildings. We're not seeing giant high rises being built anymore. That's uh, not a particularly good way of dealing with um, concentrated poverty. So you have that. So you have a couple of, of costs. One of those, you have a couple of one-time costs to really focus on. And it's worth noting that it is often the debt from these one-time costs that makes these projects more challenging. And so if you can find one-time sources of capital, then your operating costs can be quite low. But those one-time costs you might think of as one wiring the individual unit, and that um, should be, I mean, well under one hundred dollars um, per unit to do. Um, particularly when the walls are open, and everything else. I mean, well under one hundred dollars to 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 get all that um, wiring to each unit, two Cat five wires or or a fiber or two. You know, um, at that point when the walls are open, it's really cheap to put a lot of things in it. Running conduit would be nice. In some cases, it may be impractical. But and then typically, just for people to can see conceptually, you want to run each unit um, to a closet on that floor, maybe, or down to a basement, a room. You just want to make it very easy for someone to come in and just by going to one or two rooms in your com- in your building, be able to connect home, any unit anywhere, basically. Um, so that's one of the the one time costs, and then the other, which is more significant, would be um, getting high quality internet access to the building, um, either through a fiber network that could be very costly if the city does not already have one um, nearby, or uh, you can use uh, what Monkey Brains uses in many cases in its business, which is a high capacity fixed wireless link, uh, where you might be looking at on the order of three thousand uh, dollars per radio, I think, to do that. I I'm not as good yet at remembering if it's per pair or per radio. Um, but those are one-time costs that, that you know, again, as you, if you can just take care of them and not have any debt associated with them, then your operating costs are very low to be able to deliver high-quality internet access, whether from a nonprofit or from a for-profit company to those units. Again, then your largest cost is going to be your kind of um, help desk is what we call it. But if you have a digital inclusion program, which is something that you'll probably really need anyway for other benefits, and they can really help take some of the pressure off of the ISP, then at a relatively low charge, you could have you know a very good ISP taking care of a lot of that rather than doing it yourself. Well, there's certainly no problem doing it yourself in many cases, um, but um, in my experience, people would rather have a specialized company doing that anyway. So um, Monkey Brains is showing that this can all work, and you're you're explaining to the world how how that works. <laughs> yeah. I think what you touched on is really important. If you have buildings that have the capacity for really easy, fast internet connectivity, that's really half the battle. And then people, organizations like CTN, helping get that buy-in on the resident side is also a huge effort. Right. Yeah. And that's something that we talked about in uh, with relation to Queensbridge, actually, which is a massive public housing development in New York City, where they're doing a big Wi-Fi program to get people uh, online. And one of the things that they found is that hiring people from within who live in the community to to be part of that outreach effort is really essential for buy-in. And I thought I think the report was done by um, Rakeen Maboud, and I think we had her on the show. Um, but I I found her research on that to be really instructive. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of people in the community that are really willing and happy to be patient teachers. Um, Yeah, because that's half the battle, just being friendly and patient and letting people take their time to learn these programs and really getting them excited about learning. Well, thanks, Hannah, for for doing the report. Thanks for coming in to to give us a preview of what's going to be coming out. Uh, It's been a pleasure working with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
That was Christopher and Hannah Rank, who recently worked as one of our public policy interns and has been developing a case study on San Francisco, the WISP Monkey Brains, and their project to bring digital inclusion to the city's public housing residents. As Christopher and Hannah mentioned in the interview, the report will be ready this fall. Check back for updates. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other ILSR podcasts, Building Local Power and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research? Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thanks to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed with Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 319 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>